This is from Psalm 121, page 622 in the Church Bible. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Morning, everybody. My name is Neil, and uh, in a moment or two, we're going to take a look into this passage. But just as parents start to make their way back down, I wonder whether you might answer the question that the psalmist asks us in that passage. The question is, where does my help come from? And what I'd like you to do is just for a moment, just... Just chat maybe with your neighbor if you don't find that too socially awkward. Chat to your neighbor and just say, where are the places that we go to? Who are the people that we turn to when we feel we need help? Okay, just for a moment, that could be as simple as visiting a GP or phoning your mom, whatever it might be. Who do you go to when you're looking for help? Just for a minute or two as parents rejoin us. Why don't we pray and we're going to start taking a look at God's word together. Uh, just now. Let's pray, shall we? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Almighty God and uh, Father in heaven, thank you for all the helps that we have in life, those whom we turn to in times of need, times of uncertainty and security. Thank you for those who are precious to us who have helped us along the way. But we thank you that you ultimately are our helper. And we ask and pray that we would learn um, to have a, a song of joy in our hearts in any and every circumstance because we know how quick you are to provide us with all the help we need to live well in this world until you take us to be with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the second week of the series. There it is up on the screen. It's called Songs to Make Your Heart Sing. Not sink, sing. Notice that one. And uh, as we go, I hope that we'll both unpack and begin to understand what it means to experience joy in the Christian life, but also how to hold on to it in any and every situation. And last week, we began with a general introduction. Maybe you weren't here, you haven't had a chance to listen in, with a general introduction to this idea of joy in the Bible. Church pastor and writer John Piper expresses it this way. He says, joy, Christian joy, is a good feeling. He goes on to explain what he means. He says, by that, I mean it's not an idea. It's not a conviction, it's not a persuasion or a decision, it is a feeling, or, I use the words interchangeably here, an emotion. We're not very good, some of us, at talking about emotions, but that's where we're going to be 
in these weeks to come. And as we read through the Bible, we're going to discover that we ought to expect the emotion of joy to be present in our Christian experience. That the kind of joy we're discussing and describing is not a come-and-go kind of thing. And I want us to start just by echoing some of the things that Craig shared last week, just some foundational truths that we need to hold on to as we walk our way through this series to help us really understand this idea of joy. And let me just start with this one. Christians can rejoice. And what I mean by that is that Christians have a reason to rejoice that that makes it an essential part of the Christian life. Um, We celebrate good news, don't we, when, when we receive it, whatever kind it might be. And what I mean is there's something inherent to Christianity that makes it good news, that puts joy at the center of our individual experience and our experience as a church. So John Stott says this, he says, whenever Christian people come together, it is impossible to stop them singing. Singing is a a manifestation of joy. And he says, do you know what? That doesn't actually happen in any other religion. He says, a a Buddhist temple never resounds with a cry of praise. Muslim worshippers never sing. Their prayers are at the highest prayers of submission and request. They are never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. Why is Christianity different? John Stock concludes the Christian community is a community of celebration. When I uh, get into a taxi or or call an Uber, quite often I discover in Birmingham that the driver is probably often a Muslim. And uh, it's very natural, as I tell him about my faith and the job that I do, it's very natural for us to talk about these things. And I often ask them, do you know that you'll be in heaven And the answer they always give is no. They say it depends on the kind of life I've led. Um, He might say that uh, his life is a life where he's trying to do enough good things to earn, in some sense, a relationship with God. So religion, understood like that, could be spelt with two letters. The letters D and O. It's about what I do or what I'm trying to do to earn God's favor to do enough. And of course, there's no joy in a life where you're constantly looking over your shoulder wondering, have I done enough? He doesn't know. But Christianity is totally different. We believe that a relationship with God is not about what we do, but about what Jesus has already done in his death for our sins and resurrection. So if religion generally is spelled with two letters, D-O, Christianity is spelt with four letters, D-O-N-E. It is what Jesus has already done. It's about already knowing as we come Sunday by Sunday to church that we have been forgiven, that our wrongdoings, our mistakes, the ways we've ignored God and turned our back on him, that it's forgiven and forgotten forever and that we have a certain hope of sharing in heaven. And that is why joy is uniquely Christian. That's what John Stott is saying. The Christian community is 
a community of celebration. So this is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, praise be. There you go. There's the joy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this may come up in a minute on the screen. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. Do you know that, Christian? You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept for you in heaven. There we go. This inheritance is kept for you, second paragraph, in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. That's what we've done, isn't it? We've sung songs already of joy. We have an inheritance that can never be taken away from us. Heaven itself. We'll come back to the end of that verse in just a moment. So Christians can rejoice because it's all been done for us. Secondly, Christians should rejoice. You see, if the gospel is true, we have good news to dwell on and to live out, to understand, to reflect on, and to enjoy. In other words, there's something not quite right about joyless Christianity. It's kind of a a contradiction, joyless Christianity. Christianity is inherently good news. So a church without joy, a Christian who has no joy, well, it's, that's not impossible, but it's not right. And something perhaps needs to change. Christians can rejoice. Christians should rejoice. Thirdly, we saw last week that Christians must rejoice. Maybe you remember um, Rachel's talk to the children at the beginning of the service last Sunday. She took these words from Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Those are the words of the apostle Paul. Now, Paul isn't giving us advice. This is an instruction. It's an imperative. It's a command. And it points us to to the last thing, just before we get into our psalm, that Christians can learn to rejoice. Um, Ours is a joy that can be cultivated and nurtured as we grow in our Christian faith. Occasionally, we read of people in the Bible who just experience the joy of their salvation in quite a remarkable way. And they're just bursting with joy instantaneously, a joy that comes directly from God. And you may have experienced that too, maybe the day you became a Christian. Or maybe just at times in your Christian life where you've particularly known the presence of God in an overwhelming sense and the joy of your salvation has just come to you and overwhelmed you. That happens to us from time to time. But more normally, joy is something that grows out of our knowledge of God. In other words, joy is cognitive. It comes from thinking and meditating and reflecting on the gospel. So if you're struggling with joy in your Christian experience, the whole point of this series is let's look at the Bible together and find reasons to rejoice. Because joy is something that that we can't quite capture, but we can receive it as we learn about God and the gospel and the good news that we have. 
Joy is cognitive. And Matthew Elliott, in his little book on joy, says that what really Paul is saying when he commands you to rejoice is he's saying, have the beliefs and values that will produce the commanded emotion. So have the belief that it's my privilege to know Jesus. It's my place to rejoice in my salvation and to meditate and to think on those things. And as you do the commanded emotion, God will give. It's a kind of, almost if you like, a byproduct of dwelling and reflecting and thinking about the joy of our salvation. Well, those are four foundational, essential ideas. Christians can rejoice. Christians must rejoice. Christians should, should rejoice. And Christians can learn to rejoice. But as we do that, we know already, don't we, that joy is not the only emotion that we experience as Christians. Uh, we use the phrase mixed emotions, don't we, quite a lot. We say, well, I've got mixed emotions about that. And that describes the Christian life, mixed emotions. Many of us this, this morning are battling mixed emotions, just even here in a service. Even as we're seeking to be joyful in the Lord, all sorts of other emotions pile in, one on top of another. And I want to say that is natural and normal. And again, the Bible is full of examples of mixed emotions. So let's turn again to those verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. Do you notice the little bit there at the bottom? In all this you greatly rejoice, that is your salvation, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's Peter saying joy and grief are the part of the Christian experience, mixed emotions. The same Apostle Paul who commanded you to rejoice, Philippians chapter 4, still says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. The same man commanding you to rejoice is describing his own despair at the suffering he's experiencing. Mixed emotions. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus himself, who in Gethsemane was in anguish, had a perfect relationship with his Father in heaven. If anyone knew the joy of the Lord, it was Jesus, and yet... In Gethsemane, he was in anguish. Joy is not the only emotion you will experience in your Christian life. And nowhere in the Bible is there ever a suggestion that it should be. And that means that as we look at this series, we know that we're, if you like, in a fight in our emotional life. As we experience these mixed emotions. The battle to rejoice in our salvation even as we face issues of anxiety, stress, even as we experience grief and despair, whatever it might be. The joy-filled Christian life is a battle between our mixed emotions. And that's where the Psalms in particular really come to our help. They really do, because they address the heart. 
so directly as well as the head. Josh Moody, in a little book on some of the Psalms, says the Psalms are written to help us put our feelings in the right place. That's why God has given you this beautiful book in the middle of the Bible. The Psalms don't merely educate us or inform us. They have the power to move us. So Moody again says, they help us feel as we are meant to feel, as well as think as we are meant to think. That's why many of us as as Christians, when we are struggling, we turn to the Psalms, don't we? Because they help us to feel the things we should feel as well as think the ways we should think. And now for this morning, I want to give a little attention in the rest of our time together to think about one of those emotions that we battle with alongside a desire to rejoice in the Lord. One particular emotion that threatens to rob us of our joy, and that emotion is fear. And fear in a particular form. Fear of the unknown. In our society, it seems that growing numbers of people struggle with fear of the unknown. It affects and impacts many lives, including the lives of Christians. That for many, a general sense of anxiety, what will tomorrow bring, can become life-changing and even at times crippling. One uh, professor of psychology who directs a mood and anxiety disorders research program goes to so far as to suggest that behind all of the fear-based anxiety disorders is an acute sensitivity to uncertain threats. So that seems to be at the heart of them all, just the what if and what's coming tomorrow and what might come the next day. Uncertainty threatens to rob us of our joy, in other words. And we know that, don't we? Because life is at times and has a, and appears to be random. Our minds will take us, therefore, to quite strange and scary places. Feelings of insecurity lead us to play the what-if game and we find ourselves fearing the worst just about every time. And a secular worldview can do very little to help you with fear of the unknown. I mean, after all, this is the advice of Richard Dawkins. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. Well, that's great, Richard. Thank you for telling me that life is a lottery. And I may get lucky or I may not, but that's all you can offer. But if there is no God, if there's nothing behind this universe, at least he's kind of honest, isn't he? That it is some of us, and as we play the life of the game of chance, some of us will get luckier than others. But as Christians, if you're here as a Christian this morning, then you have a place to go, don't you? In a world of risk, insecurity, uncertainty, there's a place to go so that you may hold on to the joy of the Christian life. And I want to suggest that Psalm 121 is of particular help to us with this uncertainty-based fear. So if you have closed the Bible, would you open it on page 622? It's quite a short psalm. not going to be here for very long. 
But I hope that as we reflect on it briefly this morning, that, that we'll have some tools to help us meditate and reflect on and think through so that when those fears threaten to pile in and on top of our joy, we might find God's comfort and answer in this psalm. Do you notice there, Psalm 121, at the beginning it says a song of ascents, ascents, which means decline. There's 14 of these psalms all in a row. They start at Psalm 120. There's a little like a book within the book, the psalms of ascents, 14 of them. And most commentators think that what's going on in these psalms of ascent are this is the songbook that Israel sang as they walked towards Jerusalem. Three times a year, all of God's people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. And as they walked, so they sang to keep them uh, going. They didn't plug in their, their iPod, whatever it is and, uh, and, uh, and, and listen to their own set of songs. They sang together the Psalms of Ascent. Because traveling then was both arduous physically, but it was also dangerous. It was a dangerous business to walk your way up to Jerusalem. And at the very beginning of this short psalm, the psalmist asked one question. In all of life's uncertainty, verse 1, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? Can I ask this morning, rhetorically, we don't need to discuss it anymore, where your help tends to come from? And just to say this word help here um, is a stronger one than perhaps we use it for, we have a help desk kind of idea in our heads. Well, help here means protection, Actually, it's probably a stronger word. In other words, where do you go? Who do you turn to when you're looking for security and safety? Who do you look to to keep you safe? Here's a picture, I think, of uh, Floyd Mayweather. He looks a pretty tough guy, doesn't he? He's never lost a fight. Is that right? Never lost a fight. And uh, he's a professional boxer who's made his millions from that. So you kind of think he would fear nothing or no one. But when he made a trip recently to London, he brought along a few of his friends. And I've not photoshopped that. There's Floyd in the middle, and uh, there's four of his friends. Those are his bouncers, his bodyguards, his protectors. Look, if Floyd Mayweather can't walk the streets of London without feeling a little bit afraid, well, I'm not surprised that we feel life sometimes is risky and scary that we need protection too. And maybe we can't get four bouncers of that size to come and protect us. Your budget might not go that far, so where else do you go? Well, maybe you go to mindfulness and meditation. You take advice on how to sort of rewire your mind to stop harmful and unhelpful thought patterns coming. Or perhaps you take to escape. Maybe a, a long walk in the woods does it for you. Or just getting away from it all on an exotic holiday. Some sadly self-medicate. When life is too much, they turn to alcohol or shoe shopping or pornography. How about you? Where does your help come from? Look at verse 2. The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. You notice verse 1. He says he, he lifts up his eyes to the hills. Now, some think this is, um, he looks, lifts up his eyes and sees some scary things because the hills were scary. That's where the bandits lay in waiting for Israel as they climbed the hills to get to Jerusalem. They knew that they could pick off 
easy targets as they saw them coming from the hills? Is he looking and is scared by what he sees in the hills? Perhaps. But most commentators think, no, when he says, I lift up my eyes, that's usually an idiom to describe I turn to God. Because if you look on two Psalms to 123, just along the next page, you see verse 1, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. So in other words, the psalmist is probably saying, when I need help, well, one option is to look within. Mindfulness, escapism, alcohol. Or, rather than looking within, I could look up. And his decision is to look up. In other words, to look to God. When life threatens him, that's where he goes. And verse 2, he says, do you know, that's the only sane thing to do. With all of your uncertainties, with all of your fears, and whereas there's only one place to go, verse 2, it's to God. Why? He tells us two things about God in verse 2. He tells us that God is the Lord. And he tells us that he's the maker of heaven and earth. Now, the thing you need to know about the Lord is it's his covenantal name. In other words, he's not just describing a God. He's describing the God who has come to our aid in the gospel already. A God who has committed himself to us and bound himself to us in and through Jesus Christ, his son, and his death on the cross. So it's not just the Lord as in a God. He's talking about the Lord who is our God, who has gone to such extraordinary lengths to bring us into a relationship with himself. He's the promise-making and promise-keeping God, in other words, as you look at the word, the Lord. So, So when I'm struggling, I look up and I remember the Lord who's committed himself to me. So there is a God who is willing to come to your aid. And secondly, he's the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, he's the only God. He is the supreme being. He's the one to whom every knee will bow. And therefore, he's the one who is not only willing to come to our aid, but he's able to come to our aid because he has no rivals. There is no one like him. He is the maker of everything. Do you know that, Christian? That when life threatens to overwhelm you, If you look up to God, you look to a God who is for you because he's willing. He's the God who's covenanted to you, the Lord. And he's able, because he's all-powerful, to come to your aid in every situation. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? To know there's someone who's both willing and able And as the psalmist has reflected on that for himself, verses 1 to 2, do you see he's talking about himself? Where do I go? Verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to the end, he now talks to us. And he starts to go from the first person, singular, to the second person, plural. Well, this is what I have discovered. He is my helper. Now let me tell you about this God too. Do you see that verse 3? He switches from me to say something to you if you're a Christian. He says, Christian, do you know he will not let your foot slip? One word dominates verses 3 to 8. It's a Hebrew word, shema. It means to guard or to keep, to protect. And it appears six times in these verses 3 to 8. The NIV slightly obscures it because it uses two different words, 
for the one Hebrew word. It uses the word watch and keep. But it's the same idea, isn't it? To protect, to watch over, to keep. The Lord watches over his people. So verses 3 and 4, God is watching you. I absolutely love that first half of verse 3. I cling to it, don't you? He will not let your foot slip. Think for a moment how close someone needs to be to you to stop your feet from slipping. They have to just be an arm's length away, don't they? They have to be able to reach out and stop something. God is that close to you, Christian. He will not let your foot slip. Every Sunday morning we see parents tracking their children. Watch them after the service. Sorry, parents, if you're one of them. We'll just watch you for now. We won't come to your help, but we'll watch you as you track the steps of your toddlers as they walk this way aimlessly and that way aimlessly and don't know what's safe and unsafe. But you're watching, aren't you? Always. And you're always just an arm away. No, 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 don't touch that. Too hot. Don't come here. Don't go up those steps. Whatever else it may be. I remember one of my children, my youngest, um, you could take him to a beach and sit him down and he'd just go. And you didn't know which direction he was going to go, but one thing you knew is you would never look around. You would never look back. You think, I'm just going to go with you. I'm just going to walk and just wait to see how long, how far you're going to walk before you ever turn around. And he would go and go and go. And I thought, you, have, you just kind of know Mum and dad are going to be there. It, it just doesn't occur to you that they might not be, which is why you're not looking around. You just know, wherever I stop, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be secure. He never did turn around. Maybe he just knew he was secure. He knew wherever I go, we were there. And we were for the most part. Well, they frightened the life out of us at times. Childlike trust... To know that wherever I go in my aimless Christian life, at times it is aimless, isn't it? God is there. And he won't let my foot slip. Because he's always there. And did you see what else it says in verses 3 and 4? He doesn't sleep. That's the problem with being a parent. is you, You can't guarantee you can be there every moment of every day, every waking or sleeping hour. You can't, no matter how many little cameras you set up or... Uh, communication devices you can't keep watch because you're going to fall asleep sooner or later but we have a protector who's never off duty he neither slumbers nor sleeps this is 24 hours seven day a week 365 days of the year god will not let your foot slip one commentator wrote beautifully on this verse when he said we can sleep because god does not sleep we can travel Because God knows the way. We can keep going because God will not let our foot slip. He is constantly watching. So in the midst of your anxieties and your fears over the future, how do you hold on to joy? How do you cultivate that joy? Well, you remind yourself of these truths, don't you? Don't you say to yourselves, Lord, thank you that there's never a moment when your eye is off me. Never a moment when you're unable to help. As I go into work today or as I face this difficult situation, thank you that you are so close to me 
that you will stop me from stumbling. God is watching. Verses 5 and 6, God is also protecting you. In the Middle East, the sun is deadly. Not in the UK, it's just not here very much. But in the Middle East, it's deadly. I've, I've only once been to a truly hot country. I went to Turkey one summer, and it was about 42 degrees, just to translate for those who need it, about 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And we visited the ruins of the ancient city of Ephesus. And as our tour guide took us around, he knew exactly where to position us as we moved from this bit to this bit to this bit on a two-hour tour. Every time he took us to the shade. And he took us into the shade and said, right, let me tell you what we're going to see in a moment as we go out there. But I'm going to describe it for you here in the shade so that you can then go and explore for as much or as little time as you like. And then we go to the next place, to the shade, to the shade, to the shade. Do you see that, verse 5? The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade. At your right hand, the sun will not harm you by day. And the moon won't harm you by night. And of course, the moon doesn't, we don't fear the heat of the moon. Here, it might just be a reference to the darkness. You know, the, the, the dark nights when you don't know who, you hear a sound and you don't know who it is. But it's kind of all of the day and all of the night, isn't it? The sun won't harm you by day. The moon won't harm you by night. God is keeping you safe. He's protecting you. There's comfort, isn't there? And joy in the knowledge that day and night, the Lord is protecting me. And when the psalmist teaches us, what he's teaching us is that God's solution is not to take away the very things that we worry about, but to protect us from the very things that we worry about. When you think about it, that's really quite helpful because if God just, if we said God take it away and he took it away, we'd, we'd learn not to worry until the next thing came along. And then the next thing's going to come along and actually we'll never stop worrying. But if our mindset is no, what God is going to do is keep me in these trials and adversities and difficult times and he's not going to let my foot slip then whether those trials stay or whether they go, I'll have a sense, I hope, a growing sense of peace and trust and maybe even joy that he's going to watch me and keep the sun from harming me. He's not going to take the sun away, but he's going to keep it from harming me. And that seems to be the pattern of the Christian life. Verses 7 and 8, the conclusion. A total promise for complete protection. Do you notice that? Verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. How does that sound to you? Too good to be true? The Lord will keep you from all harm? Too big a promise? Maybe you feel your own Christian life experiences in some ways contradicted. It just seems too much. Is God going to protect me in every way at all times, in all places, forever? Aren't there plenty of times when I've cried out to God and he seemed not to come? I think for some of us, we look back and think of episodes in our lives where we, it feels like that. But the Bible insists that God is watching over us every moment of every day. 
in the happy times and in the tough times. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Where is God, he may have said. He was thrown into prison on trumped-up charges. But later, when he met his brothers, many years later, and he was prince of all Egypt, he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God was keeping me from harm in bringing purpose and order to the struggles of life. God was always there. It wasn't just that he showed up in the end. He was always there with Joseph in prison, with Joseph at the bottom of the well, whatever else it may be. Paul pleaded with God to take the thorn away from his side, and God was always there, saying no grace is perfected in weakness. God keeps us, in other words, verse 7, from all harm by working for our good in any and every situation. That's what it means that he keeps you from all harm. That he's working for your good, primarily for your salvation, causing you and calling upon you to trust him and grow in your faith through the trials. The best commentary on the Bible is always the Bible. And the best commentary on Psalm 121 is Romans chapter 8, where Paul can say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything or anyone keep us from the love of Christ now and the hope of heaven to come? And Paul says nothing, not even death, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all of creation can harm us if God is determined to take us to be with him in glory. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the New Testament commentary on Psalm 121. And what causes us worry is when we say, who can be against us? Let me tell you who can be against us. I've got a long list. And we do, don't we? But you see what Paul is saying and what the psalmist is saying is that God is at work in and through those trials to refine and to purify and to to make you the son and daughter of the living God that he wants you to be. And it may be that that is just too hard for you today to just take on board and and to walk away with. But maybe you just need to talk it out and pray it through with someone. Well, come and talk to myself. Come and talk to Emily. Find someone to, to get that clear in your own mind and experience too. The truth is, as a Christian, you'll never walk alone. And you never have. You never have. God is keeping you. He's watching over you. He's looking after you. So as we finish, joy is possible even alongside the fear of the unknown. And the question we return to is the question at the start of the psalm. Where do I go for help? Who is willing to protect me? And then we remember that in Christ, we find the one who is bigger than every fear of our hearts. And in him we begin to experience a joy that confounds our fears. We don't need to redefine joy in the hard times. We don't redefine it. 
we just understand it in a deeper and more personal way. Let's pray. My help comes from the Lord. He will not let your foot slip. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Thank you, Father in heaven, for the psalm that has helped us to feel the things that we should feel as well as know the things that we should know. And we ask that this truth would be a living truth for us today. And you might use it to renew and rekindle joy in our hearts even in the darkest days. That you might use this psalm to sustain us and feed us all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.